Here we are again at our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We have taken a summer break, but we're back here again in the fall. And Lord willing, we'll be here uh, Wednesday nights. There may be somewhere along the line, maybe during Hanukkah or whatever. We might take one uh, week off, but generally we'll be here every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock uh, Pacific time. And we're glad you're here with us. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we are grateful again, Lord, for your mercies to us. We are so grateful that in your good providence and your love for us, you have given us your word. You carried along by your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, those that you chose to write and you guarded their words so that we have the inspired scriptures and you have maintained them throughout the millennia so that we have the very words that you have intended for us to have. We have them in our possession, even translated into our own language, as well as the original languages, and we greatly, greatly thank you for that, Father. We are so dependent upon your word to know your will, to know how to follow it, and to rejoice in knowing that you have all things planned according to your perfect will. So as we spend our time tonight looking at these verses of the Apostle Paul as he sent them to the Philippian believers, we know that they are applicable for us, and we ask that by your Spirit, O Lord, you would plant them deeply in our hearts and help us to know best how we can follow and obey what you have taught us. We thank you for our Savior, Yeshua. Yeshua, we know that you are on the right hand of the Father, that is, you are interceding for us. And we bless you and thank you, Lord, for all that you have done and will do for us. And Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, your presence among us is a great, wonderful prize and blessing. And we thank you that you lead us and guide us and strengthen us to do your will. We want to submit to your leading. And we pray, O Father, that as we study your word, that we would grow in our ability to do just that, to know the truth and to live it out in our lives, in our communities, in our families, in our marriages, and in all of our relationships with others. And we bless you for this and thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, I want to read chapter 3. We have done this all along, reading the whole chapter each week. That helps get it into context, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, uh, NAS 95. Uh, we'll choose other uh, translations each week. Uh, we'll go back and forth between a few of them. Those that will give us perhaps a slightly different um, perspective, but all of that together we will study. So here's chapter 3 of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, or Torah, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the Torah, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Messiah, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the Torah, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and in if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Messiah, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I wanted to back up just a few verses because we've been uh, off on a break for the summer. And so just to get the context a little better, I want to look at uh, what we ended with last uh, spring, and that is verses 10 through 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul continues. Now, I, I just, I'm just going to briefly go through this. Um, he continues to ex- express his greatest desire, which he began to relate in verse 9 with the phrase, so that I might gain Messiah, expressing his longing to fully be trusting in Yeshua and thus pleasing him in every aspect of life. When he says to gain Messiah, he means to gain the Messiah's approval in his living, in his choices. This he also communicates with the words and may be found in him. That is, having fully trusted my life into his care and having received from him assurance of his grace, forgiveness, and eternal salvation. These are the expression of a soul redeemed by God's grace and fully aware that he has been granted full acceptance and eternal salvation through the unending grace of God in Yeshua. In other words, he's not saying that he's going to gain something more than he already has. But he wants to have this fellowship with God through Yeshua, through the means of the Spirit, in a way that fully expresses his gratitude, his love, his gratefulness for all that God has done. So may be found in him are the joyful confessions of being born again by the Ruach and having been granted saving faith in the work and person of Yeshua. Or more specifically, these are expressions of someone who has truly been forgiven and granted the status of fully righteous in God's eyes. 
it is not only the work of the enemy, but it is it is within our own fallen nature that we sometimes think, how is it possible? How could I be fully righteous in God's eyes? Well, this was the genius of Paul's expression, in the Messiah and Christo. It means that when God the Father looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of his son Yeshua, for we are in him, and all of our sins have been paid for. And you say, well, but we're not perfect yet, that's for sure. And this is why we are given the avenue of of, uh, confessing our sins and seeking to make things right with him and with others. So Paul goes on to say that I might know him. Now, I want to just skip here. The word know in the phrase that I may know him in the Greek is an aorist infinitive, since often the aorist indicates action that is completed. In other words, that I may know him completely or uh, in, in a point in time so I don't have to work more in knowing him. Some have suggested that in this phrase, Paul is describing knowing Yeshua in the future resurrection of the eschaton of the last days. But the aorist also is used in a punctiliar fashion, meaning a point in time. Thus, Paul used this form to express his present desire to know God, that is, to know his will, his instructions and commands for all aspects of his life. Here once again, the word know is used in a covenant sense, for to know him means to maintain and to live out his life as a true and abiding member of the covenant of salvation into which the Lord had brought him, with the Ruach HaKodesh as the seal of his covenant. We read this in Ephesians 1, 13-14. In him, that is, in Yeshua, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We've all probably had this experience one time or another, where we want to purchase something, but we're not going to pay all of the price right off the, at the beginning. And so the person that we're buying it from makes us put down a an earnest, in other words, a, a large enough sum of money that for if in some reason we don't continue to pay for what we're receiving, it will be taken back from us. And we'll lose that down payment or that uh, pledge. Well, when it says that the Spirit of God was given to us as a pledge of an inheritance, do you think God is ever going to remove the Holy Spirit from us? No. Why? He paid way too much for us. It was the death of his own son, Yeshua, who left the glories of heaven to come and be our Savior. And so, if the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance, our inheritance is sure. God never fails to redeem that which he has pledged. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, what is this power? It first reminds us that death has occurred for those who are resurrected have died. The power of Yeshua's resurrection, then, is that he proved himself to have the power over death. Even as Paul was in prison awaiting the verdict of the judges, he was able to reckon his current suffering as experiencing in some measure the very kind of suffering Yeshua himself endured and thus was enabled, with this perspective in mind, to rejoice in such suffering since it drew him closer to the Messiah he served. Isn't that another way to look at the difficult times that we face, even in our times now? 
does it not give us the opportunity to show the, the reality of our faith? When we suffer for Him, when we suffer because we are witnesses of Him, then we have the ability to, just in a very small way, understand how Yeshua Himself suffered. Surely Paul's life at this juncture hung in the balance, held by those who had the power of life and death. He's in prison. Yet he was insistent upon putting his hope in the truth of God that death was not the end, but that resurrection from the dead and life with God for eternity was a surety. This is such a comfort for those of us who have lost loved ones. And it's even a comfort for us as we grow older and recognize that our days are numbered. We recognize that God's promise is sure and that there will be the resurrection, and those who know him will resurrect to a life eternal with him. This gave him, that is, Paul, the power to endure the woes that he experienced, and that may yet come to him in this fallen world. Thus it is one's true faith in God that enables a person to bear up under the woes of this world. As First John uh, tells us in chapter 5, verse 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So, Paul says about being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This wording no doubt rests upon the language of Paul that Paul used in 2, 5-8, where he admonishes the Philippian believers to, quote, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, right? Who, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself of that outward glory and came to this earth to die the worst kind of death for us that we might have sins forgiven. The mindset he admonishes here is seen in the way he outlined the manner in which Yeshua humbled himself, left the glory of his heavenly abode, came in the likeness of human flesh, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what does it mean to be conformed to his death? It must be understood as Paul's great desire to have the same inner strength and faith to follow in Yeshua's footsteps by fulfilling his mission to serve him even if this were to result in his death. Here, the apostle reminds all of us how much we must long to be like Yeshua, which includes having the same goal that he had as he humbled himself to bring about the divine plan of salvation. This causes us to constantly ask ourselves an all-important question. Is serving the Lord and living to bring about His purposes my highest goal in life? As we seek to have this as our life priority, we will likewise desire to find any and all means that strengthen us to reach this goal. To attain the resurrection of the dead. This does not mean that He had any fear that He might not attain this goal. Rather, By the phrase, to attain to the resurrection of the dead, he means to finally and eternally dwell with Yeshua. In other words, the ultimate goal that Paul had and that every believer should have is to hear the words from Yeshua himself, well done, good and faithful servant. All right, now let's go on to verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah. Now, I don't put this in the notes uh, directly, but what does it mean uh, for that which I also was laid hold of by Messiah? Did Messiah press on? Yes. Remember that 
he set aside the divine expression of his glory that he had in heaven. And I also think that in that uh, phrase of uh, empty himself, which we had in, in chapter 2, it means that he set aside the use of some of his divine attributes. It tells us that he, as a boy, he grew in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man. How could he grow in knowledge if he was all-knowing? It must be that he set aside that aspect. He didn't give it up, but he set aside the use of it so that he would come as a man, one that would grow in his knowledge and understanding. In that way, he also proves to us that we, in his strength and by his power and the power of the Spirit, can grow in the understanding of what it means to attain to the ultimate goal, which is being with him for eternity. So he says, not that I have already obtained, Paul says. The words not that are an ellipsis, which is a grammatical term meaning a short way of saying something. For ulegooti, I did not say. When he, in the previous uh, text, it may, if we take it out of context, sound like Paul was saying, I've arrived. <laughs> I've attained. Well, he wants to make sure that we don't think that's what he meant. Paul quite often uses this formula to qualify something in the previous context to make sure his readers do not misunderstand or misinterpret what he has said. His point is that his emphasis in the previous verse regarding knowing Yeshua and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and conforming to his death should not be understood by his readers that he had considered himself to have already reached the goal of complete and ultimate victory over the flesh. In short, Paul wants to make it clear that he is not teaching perfectionism, which is a term meaning that the believer in Yeshua can, in this life, reach such a level of holiness that he or she has reached spiritual perfection and thus no longer must war against the sinful nature. Now, you may not recognize it or know this, but there are there is at least one church and maybe others that teach this. The Apostolic Church... Uh, across the United States, and I don't know if there are in other foreign lands, they might be, they believe in perfectionism. They believe that a person can come to such a high standard of righteousness and spirituality that they no longer sin. Well, Paul makes it clear in, in throughout his epistles, as we find throughout the scriptures. No, he wants to make sure people don't think that when he said that he would attain to the resurrection of the dead, that he was already uh, fully ready and able to live without sin. No, that's not what he wants. He wants us to understand that in this life we will have some failings, but we must grow to the point where we can less and less be led into those failings and more and more be known as those who obey. And when we don't obey, we confess our sins. And what does the scripture say? He, Yeshua, is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, the life of the believer is a growing in ability to say no to that which God hates and say yes to that which he requires and loves. When we fail, we seek forgiveness. And even in that process, we gain further strength to not give in 
to that weakness again. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Here Paul explains that which comprises the final and ultimate goal of the believer in Yeshua, namely, to reach perfection. And the word, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. Teleao is the word there. Um, no, but it's that which we're striving for. Okay, namely to reach the point where we're not constantly uh, or regularly or even very often doing that which is sinful. And he makes it very clear that he had not reached this ultimate goal of final and complete sanctification. Now, there is one manuscript uh, of Philippians that inserts the phrase, or have already been justified, giving the interpretation that Paul is speaking about justification. But this is obviously wrong. And it, by the way, as I look in, as you look in the footnote, you'll see that there's only one manuscript, and it's a, a papyrus, uh, that uh, that had this phrase in it, and all none of the others do. So, but it's interesting that it's there. Uh, it's obviously wrong. Why? For the believer's justification is complete. For justification means to be declared righteous. Justification means that God has taken the divine gavel and struck it upon the desk and declared not guilty for all of us who are in the Messiah Yeshua. Why? He has paid for our sin. And if payment has been made, it's not required twice. So justification is the declaration of God that those who are in the Messiah are, are, are considered in his law court as justified, as righteous. And this is on the basis of Yeshua's having paid for the debt of sin. As an aside, and this is an important point, and I'll just let you uh, mull it over. This teaches us once again, as it regularly does throughout the scriptures, that Yeshua's death upon the cross actually paid for sin. It's not a potential payment for sin. Nothing needs to be added to it. Those who teach that, oh, you must add your, your belief to it before it's uh, effective. No. Yeshua actually paid for sin, and that is seen as a, 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 in a monetary way uh, throughout the scriptures, especially the apostolic scriptures. So what is it that we're seeking to attain? It is the, the growth in sanctification. And what is sanctification? Sanctification is becoming more and more conformed to what God has already declared us to be. God has declared us fully righteous, that is, justified. For God, who exists entirely out of time, there's not before and after. When Yeshua died, all those that would come to faith in the Messiah Yeshua were declared righteous. And God knew this from before the foundations of the earth, according to the scriptures. But what is sanctification then? Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more conformed to what God has already declared us to be, becoming who we truly are in the Messiah Yeshua. Thus, it seems clear that in our verse, Paul emphasizes that even though the believer in Yeshua stands justified in the court of heaven, each one who is in Yeshua proves his or her true identity through the process of becoming more and more conformed to him 
in thought, word, and actions. Okay, so we need to keep justification and sanctification clearly joined together because everyone who is justified becomes sanctified. Well, justification is the work of God alone. Sanctification is the work of God together with the redeemed soul, together becoming more and more like Yeshua. So Paul says, but I press on. This short phrase emphasizes the central theme of these final verses of chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. It is this ultimate goal of full victory over sin and conformity to the holiness won for us by Messiah that Paul refers to when he writes that he had not fully obtained this level of perfection, but that he presses on. That is, he continues to have his eye upon the finish line and presses forward in the spiritual race of gaining more and more victories over the sinful flesh, thus growing in holiness and likeness to Yeshua. And in fact, Paul often uses the foot race to describe the life of the believer in this fallen world. I've given you some additional references in the footnote there. Now, it's very clear that the Greek games were well known in Paul's day, as best as we can understand, and from all the history that we have. And we've all watched uh, races, foot races, and so forth, uh, in, even in, in some of our own Olympics, uh, modern Olympics, we see this happening. And he's using this metaphor. What does the what does the runner do? Any of you that have been runners and sprinters and so forth, um, you know that you you have to have a good start, but the good start is not enough. What do you have to do? You have to be in good enough shape to maintain the high pace that you intend to uh, retain throughout the race, so that you can be at the front of the pack and come across the finish line first, if possible. And this is what he means by, but I press on. How do we take this practically into our own lives? Well, in some ways we're running this race. We come upon obstacles. We become tired. We become discouraged. How is it that we can continue forward as God intends us to? Even as Paul is saying, even in all of the things that he suffered, he says, but I press on. Well, Calvin puts it this way regarding Paul's words here. He adds that he has not as yet arrived at this. At what? At the attainment of having entire fellowship in Christ's sufferings, having a full taste of the power of his resurrection, and knowing him perfectly. He teaches, therefore, by his own example, that we ought to make progress, and that the knowledge of Messiah or Christ is an attainment of such difficulty that even those who apply themselves exclusively to it do nevertheless not attain perfection in it so long as they live. We're moving towards perfection, but it will only be when this mortal puts on immortality that the sinful nature will be eradicated and we will forever be with the Lord, no longer having any ideas or any uh, draw towards that which is sinful. Another commentator, Garland, gives this excellent picture of the runner in a race as explaining Paul's meaning. The runner is not to be congratulated for running three laps well in a four-lap race, nor does a runner who expects to win a race look behind 
and bask in the effort expended so far, but instead strains every muscle to reach the finish line. One cannot run well looking backward. In the same way, Paul does not rest on his merits as a zealous Pharisee or as a Christian apostle. Martin Luther observes that the nature of the Christian life does not lie in what one has become, but in what one is becoming. I remember well in track and field uh, when I was in high school, the coach would regularly remind the sprinters, no, don't look back. Don't look to see who's next to you. Look forward. Move forward towards the finish line and let that be your goal. When you look back, you lose your pace. And so that's what Paul is saying. I look forward. I press forward to the upward call of the Messiah. Ultimately, it is only when we leave our earthly dwelling and enter into eternity with our Messiah that the believer is rid of the sinful nature and the goal of full victory over the sinful nature will be obtained. As Paul notes in his first epistle to the Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians 15.54, in which he quotes Isaiah 25.8. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So, how are we doing, is the question we should ask ourselves, about longing for the coming of the Messiah, looking for it, living with his coming in mind. This is one of the clear things that the apostolic uh, scriptures teach us, that he's coming again, and when he comes, we will see him as he is, and we will be with him forever. Yet let us understand and be encouraged by Paul's words, but I press on. Surely the mark of the redeemed soul is that one longs to glorify God for his unspeakable gift of sending his Son and paying the ultimate and infinite price for our sins that we might be forever his and spend eternity with him. Such longing for holiness makes us press on to put to death the sinful pull of our fallen nature and to be strengthened more and more for obedience in all aspects of our lives. So we've all had this experience and we continue to have it at times, where we're kind of drugged down. It's like, okay, how do I how do I bear up under this? How do I keep going? Sometimes we we may have thoughts of doubt. We may have thoughts of, oh boy, was you know, I'm not sure what, what's going on here, and those kinds of things. That's when we must press on. Say, No, I know that Yeshua lives. I know that he died and arose from the dead. And that he ascended on high, and he's coming again. That must be a focus as we continue to say, Lord, help me to do what is right. Now, we'll talk here momentarily about the means of grace. We can't just sit and say, Lord, I want to do it. We have to train just like a, a sprinter or a runner trains. If you don't train well, you'll never run the race well. And what is the training? We're going to talk about that in a moment here. It involves the means of grace, the very things that God has given to us and put upon us and graced us with to use on a regular basis to grow in our strength and ability to say no to the sinful nature and to constantly yield and say yes to the leading of the Spirit, to live a life that honors Him. 
I think also one of the great things to do is just to consider over and over again throughout our day what it cost Yeshua to purchase us for himself. It's really beyond our ability to explain because he's infinite in his holiness. He's infinite in his glory. And he set aside that glory. And he came to a fallen world and was spit upon by man, sinful man. And yet he went to a cross willingly. And we know the angst that he had, for he said before he went to the cross, as he prayed in the garden, Father, if it is possible, and your will, take this from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Right? He there tells us the deep, deep agony that he, as the incarnate man, who also is God, felt as he looked to the cross. And yet he went there, and he died for us, and he rose victoriously. That ought to be the the ultimate uh, moving upon us to say, Lord, I want to honor you for what you have done for me. He says, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. Here, once again, we see Paul's inspired words affirming the sovereignty of God in bestowing his grace upon all those who are his. The very words of Paul in this final phrase of our verse makes it clear that we did not initially lay hold of him, but he laid hold of us. The Greek word used here, katalambano, uh, means, to, in this context, to gain control of someone through pursuit, to catch up with, or to seize someone. This gives a beautiful picture or metaphor of God's love in bringing those he has chosen to himself. He first laid hold of the one he intended to save, granting the gift of faith, and in so doing enabled the believer to lay hold of his power and promises through the enabling of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, thus forging an eternal relationship with the Creator himself. What a tremendous thing. He laid hold of us. Isn't that what it says? so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. In other words, he's the one that started the whole process. He laid hold of us. You say, well, Tim, how did he do that? Well, for most of us, it was in different, slightly different ways. Who knows? But he used means. He used people. He used parents. He used things that we heard and listened to. He used others to draw us unto himself. But he was the one drawing us. He was the one laying hold of us. This gives a beautiful picture or metaphor of God's love in bringing those he has chosen to himself. He first laid hold of the one he intended to save, granting the gift of faith, and in so doing enabled the believer to lay hold of his power and promises through the enabling of the Ruach HaKodesh, thus forging an eternal relationship with the Creator himself. To lay hold in this context gives the picture of ownership. Even as God from eternity past, as we read in Ephesians 1, 3-6, took all whom he would save to be his chosen sons and daughters, so that in every life of each believer there would be both the desire and the ongoing ability to lay hold of God. When you read these verses in Ephesians 1, 3-6, it says, Before the foundations of the earth he chose us to be his adopted children his sons and daughters. That's amazing. It reminds us again and again that God is the one who starts the process and we respond to his calling. 
This results in the ability to trust him and to gain from him the spiritual strength to persevere and to become more and more victorious over the sinful nature. In so doing, those who are truly his grow in both in their desire and ability to please him in all things and thus to give him the glory, the glory that he so much deserves, right? We're not giving him something that he otherwise doesn't have. He's all glorious. But we give him the glory because he has so saved us and so drawn us to himself and given us eternal life with him. Thus Paul wrote uh, to the Colossians, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How has he qualified us? Through the death of his Son, the resurrection, through the intercession of his Son, through the work of the Spirit whom he has given to us, and by the faith that he has given to us, for faith is a gift. It's not by works, lest anyone should boast. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. We owe everything to him. Then in verses 13 through 14 we read, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Now, what does he mean? This is where we're going to try to answer this. Having laid, I haven't, it's not that I regard myself as having laid hold of it. Laid hold of what? The first thing Paul emphasizes, having exhorted his readers to follow his example of pressing on in this spiritual race of becoming more and more like Yeshua, is the essential equality of all who have come to faith in Yeshua. Note how he begins this verse by referring to his readers at Philippi as brethren, Adelphoi, a Greek word that means brothers, but which could also carry the meaning of brothers and sisters, or to describe a group of people, both male and female, who have a close relationship. In referring to the community at Philippi as brethren, he includes himself with them as equals, in the sense of all who are in Messiah Yeshua have been equally purchased by his death and resurrection, given the indwelling Ruach and the unchanging promise of eternity with him. He's not putting himself on a pedestal, just the opposite. He uses language and he teaches that his salvation and those that he teaches make them equally brothers in God's family. Sure, God uses one person one way and another person another way. But we're all equal in the sight of God because our sin was an infinite transgression against God, which required an infinite payment. Each one of us were paid for by an infinite sacrifice that Yeshua gave on the cross. So Paul basically is telling us all of us who are in the Messiah are equal in God's sight. Now, granted, he may gift one person one way and another person another way. I understand that. 
But that doesn't mean that in God's evaluation, one is higher than the other. We all are equal in him. And Paul makes that clear when he refers to them as brethren. They're all members of the same family. Paul goes on to describe his own status in running the race, namely, that he has not laid hold of it yet. Clearly, that to which he refers is the final victory crown of having the sinful nature forever vanished and thereby being fully capable to live in complete holiness as a trophy of God's final and ultimate salvation. In describing himself this way, he teaches not only the Philippian believers, but us as well, that all true believers in Yeshua are running the same race. And therefore, all must persevere and strive to do so with integrity, growing sanctification, and with our eyes upon the finish line. That's another thing that we must constantly ask ourselves. Am I looking for the finish line? (laughs) How well I remember in... uh, track and field that the coach would tell the sprinters don't look back (laughs) right as i mentioned earlier no we're to look at the finish we're to believe that what god has said is true and that yeshua will come and when he comes we will be with him for we will see him and we will be like him for we will see him as he is it is not uncommon for people to look at leaders within the body of messiah and think that they no longer feel the tug of the sinful uh, flesh as does the common believer But such a false perspective is clearly shown in our text to be wrong. For Paul, who encountered the very presence of the risen Messiah Yeshua as he was on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, may have been considered to be far more holy than the average believer. But in our text, he makes it clear that, like all brethren, he had not yet laid hold of it. First, it should be noted that the word it in the English translations, is actually not present in the Greek itself. The wording Paul uses here relates, once again, to the metaphor of a foot race, something that was quite common in the ancient Greek world, as I've noted. To lay hold must surely means to grasp the award at the end of the race, and therefore pictures the runner having completed the race. Clearly, the point Paul is making is that as long as the Lord gives us life upon this earth, We are in the race with the goal of becoming more and more like Yeshua in all aspects of our lives. But another aspect is likewise emphasized, and it is this, that if we are to run the race as our Savior intends, then we will constantly have our eyes focused upon the finish line, and in so doing, this will urge us on to do our best in the race. Well, the application to our life of faith is obvious. We must utilize in every possible way what is called the means of grace. And there are different lists of this, but primarily these consist of the scriptures. How well are we immersing ourselves in the scriptures? Are we memorizing them so that we have it in our mind, in our heart, no matter what we're doing? We can recall it to our memory. Are we seeking to understand the the full, more complete message of the scriptures? Are we spending time asking the important questions of how this scripture or these scriptures apply to me in my life at this time? Are we asking what lessons can I learn as I study this part of the scriptures? If we continue to ask those questions and we continue to feed upon the word of God, this will be a means of strength, spiritual strength, 
for us as we seek to walk in the footsteps of Messiah. The second means of grace is prayer. How do we evaluate our prayer life? Do we pray, husbands and wives, do we pray together? Do we pray in our communities? Do we pray throughout the day asking God to give us wisdom, seeking to know what he wants, and so forth and so on? It is prayer that is that constant communication between ourselves and God through the Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit, seeking to be guided by him in all aspects of our life. And then thirdly is the fellowship of believers together in the local assembly. Why do you think it is that the the writer to the Hebrews tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together? That's a command in Scripture. It's as much a command as any of the others. Do we really think about the value of meeting together? You say, well, Tim, you know, sometimes there's people that kind of rub me the wrong way. Well, you know what? Sometimes that's what God is using to make you what he wants you to be. Sometimes how we react to those who maybe are hard to get along with. Or do we pray for them? Do we help them? Or do we consider maybe I'm one of those people that's hard to get along with? What do I need to change? If we have a humble heart and we come together to help one another, that is something that God uses in a very real way to help us apply the scriptures we know and to pray that we would become the person he wants us to be. The scriptures are the specific revelation of God describing his person, his will, and delineating what uh, what honors him and what does not honor him. If we're going to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah, we need to know the Bible. Prayer is the communion of the believer with God himself, empowered and led by the Ruach HaKodesh, the means by which the specific will of God is made known in regard to specific life decisions, as well as calling upon God for strength and wisdom to live in a way that glorifies him. And of course, these two come together best and most often in the fellowship of believers. That's why God wants us, requires us, commands us to regularly be together and not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Paul goes on to say, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now I stopped in the middle of the phrase, but I wanted to emphasize. He gives us two essential aspects of growing in our ability to honor the Lord by living lives of righteousness in this fallen world, and he does so by describing what he himself practices as essential aspects of a life of faith. First, he forgets what lies behind. To understand Paul's words here, we must be reminded that the verb to forget, just the opposite of to remember, it's the word shechach in the Hebrew, and the Hebrew mindset could carry the sense of to neglect or disregard a covenant of which one was a member. We see this, for instance, the same kind of uh, phraseology used in Jeremiah 18, 15 through 16. For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. What does it mean that they have forgotten me? Did they forget that there was a God who brought them out of Egypt? No. It is uh, 
the covenant term. They have broken my covenant. So what does Paul mean when he says to forget what lies behind? He's not saying that he ha- that he was even able to erase from his memory his former life, for he even recounts it in his first epistle to the uh, Corinthians. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church or the ecclesia of God. But what he means in our text is that he no longer allows the past to drag him down in his life of faith in Yeshua. He has forsaken the covenants that he made in the past, which were false covenants with the world and with sinful things and so forth, or selfish or whatever. He made a promise to himself, did he, at some point? (laughs) Probably so, that he would raise to the top. Well, that was a foolish covenant. That was a foolish promise, and it was contrary to what God intended. Or we can put it another way. In forgetting the past, he is stating that he no longer has an covenant of any covenant obligations in regard to his former life. The penalty has been paid by Yeshua, and the note of debt has been entirely abolished, never again to be brought up as needing to be paid. When a debt is paid, even just in our common world, when a debt is paid, you don't keep saying, how am I going to pay that? How am I going to pay that? No, that covenant has been finished and fulfilled. What will the enemy constantly seek to do? Bring to our attention that we're not good enough. Oh, that our sins have not truly been paid for. You see, no, forget that. Have no no idea to maintain that kind of thought. Why? Because that's an old covenant that has been destroyed for us we've become part of a new covenant in the Messiah Yeshua and all of the debts that were upon us have been paid for in terms of our sinful debts. That's what he means about forgetting. We can't entirely erase the things that have happened in our past, but we can confess and and make clear that they no longer have a binding upon us. If we allow our failures in the past to continue to drag us down in the present, we need to take clear understanding of what Yeshua has done for us and how in the, in the what shall we say, the ledger book in heaven, it has been marked paid in full. When the enemy seeks to bring back the things that we've done in the past upon us, when we have been forgiven of those, we've confessed those things, We need to let that go and not keep bringing it up in our mind and let it upset us. That's what Paul means. He says, forgetting those things which are behind. You can't ultimately forget it, but you don't have to be ruled by it. That's his point. And reaching forward to what lies ahead. But how is it possible for a born-again believer in Yeshua to forget the past in this way? It is possible as we more and more focus our attention on what God has done for us in Yeshua and to lay hold of the promise of God's sure and eternal forgiveness. Surely the enemy will seek to use our past lives of sin to drag us down and diminish our ability to grow in our walk with the Lord. But this is the battle we are in, and as we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we are enabled more and more to put our failures behind us and to grow in our ability by the strength of the Spirit to reach forward to what lies ahead. That is, to serve the Lord by serving each other, and to shine his lights for the gospel of Yeshua in this dark world. He says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. 
Paul continues to utilize the metaphor of the runner in a foot race to press on toward the goal. Literally, the Greek has, according to the goal I pursue, putting the emphasis upon the goal in the first part of the sentence. What is the goal that Paul has in mind? Ultimately, it surely is to hear the words of Yeshua, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua, which Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who completes in the games exercises self-control in all things. What is that? When everybody else is just lounging around and having fun, the runner is out training. <laughs> when everyone else is doing something that, oh, it just, you know, it's just a for now, it doesn't have any... No, we want to even take our times of entertainment and thank the Lord for them. Even the times of enjoyment and even the time of our hard work and the difficulties that we face. We want to say, Lord, this is for my well-being to strengthen me for the race that I'm in. How easy it is to become distracted by all of the negative aspects of the world in which we live. Wouldn't you say that that's, that's been uh, kind of exacerbated in our own times? And therefore, how important it is that we regularly focus our minds and thoughts upon the race in which we are engaged and the glorious prize that lays before us, even to be fully accepted by our risen and reigning Savior and to dwell forever in the eternal joy and majesty where all sin and sorrow will have been forever abolished and joy and happiness find their full abundance in giving glory to the one who has redeemed us. Such an uplifting aspect of our faith is enhanced and strengthened by fellowshipping together with other believers. And this is undoubtedly why the author of Hebrews wrote these inspired words. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, well, I think that uh, you hopefully got the gist of this emphasis that Paul has given us in these wonderful verses. And uh, we'll call that a class and look forward to being with you next week when we continue our study in this wonderful epistle of Paul to the Philippians. Shalom. <laughs>